Okay, we are live with the Next Level Football Show again on Sunday night, 6 p.m. I am Kyle. This is Mitchell. Mariana is unfortunately not here with us again. She's got to work at the Santa House one more night before Christmas. So first off, Merry Christmas to everybody. Uh, today is going to be a very good show. Again, talking all about American soccer. So we're looking forward to doing this and having you guys join us. So let's get started. First thing we want to talk about today, as probably many of you are aware and heard, we had the Prospects Cup, which was the was which was a big U12 tournament in basically Central Florida. It was really in Orlando. And they had a lot of top teams from around the world, including like Manchester City, Borussia Dortmund, Fluminense. They had as well uh, Club America and a couple others. And they had some as well some of the top American teams. So we're going to talk about that and we're going to dive into it right now. So I'm going to let Mitchell get started with the Prospects Cup. Okay, yes, absolutely. I'm going to go first. And here's... Here we are. So, uh, essentially, what I like to talk about first is the format they had, where they had domestic teams only playing domestic teams and international teams only playing international teams. And I kind of understand it, but at the same time, I don't, right? We, as Americans, should want to test ourselves against the best and really see where we stand as players coming through the youth system. And uh, I'm not going to talk about this right now, but in the final, we can tell we're not ready. But I'll get to that in a little bit, or we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, essentially, I think what we need to do is, all throughout the tournament, whether U.S. gets battered or it's contested or the U.S. batters international teams, is we need to have domestic versus international, and that's the way it should be. Just like it was a, a Youth World Cup tournament, you, you don't put certain, you don't put CONCACAF versus CONCACAF, you don't put... European versus European, you don't put African versus African, you intertwine and combine them and make and make them play each other. And I think that's something we should have done here. We should have had uh, FC Dallas play Manchester City, we should have Weston play uh, Boca Juniors, and etc. and just play that way. I think that would have been the better way to do it. And as for who impressed me, in my opinion, I didn't get to see a lot of the games, I only really saw two. But from the two games I saw, the team that was the best um, tactically, technically, off the ball, on the ball, I think was Boca Juniors. And simply because they had players that knew where to go and when to go. And they had players that could pass the ball anywhere. And it was phenomenal to watch. It, it was literally like watching a professional game with the players, the way they would spread out, use their shape, move the ball. And for a U-12 team to do that, you just don't see it here in America, and that's an issue. In America, a lot of times you see kids just kicking the ball longer, the coach yelling, kick it, kick it, as far as you can, kick it. And I can tell you, watching the Boca Juniors game, the coach did not tell the kids what to do. The kids already knew what to do, right? So the kids already knew the second that number six, the guy playing in the, uh, the sixth, which is the defensive midfielder in case you don't know, knew that the second he got the ball, the fullbacks need to go high and wide, and the second he got the ball, they went high and wide. Uh, or if it was a goal kick, the center backs went on top of the 18, one on each side, and the fullbacks went high and wide as well. And if the six needed, he dropped in and supported them. And for a U12 team to understand, have an understanding of that is simply impressive because not even U18 teams here understand that. Uh, so it's really impressive to see a U12 understand the tactics and it's not even that they understand the tactics. It's 
their technique was phenomenal as well. I mean, they weren't bad players. Every single one of them had good technical ability and could pass the ball, could dribble, could do everything you wanted with the ball, and it was simply spectacular to watch. And then sadly, after the game, after that game, I got to watch an American team's play, and boy, was that nowhere near as good. Uh, the level went from way up here to all the way down here, and it was it was bad to see. I remember watching not to bash any teams, but I was watching the FC Dallas versus I don't remember who the other team was, and uh, there was Real Jersey. Jersey I think it was yeah. yeah. Real Jersey, and the level just dropped tremendously. I mean, I went from watching Boca Juniors 6 to watching FC Dallas' 6, and the level was, I mean, night and day. It was like when the U.S. played Argentina in the, not the Gold Cup, Copa America. Yeah, I mean, it was night and day, the technical ability. So that, that that's literally, literally, it's an Argentinian team versus, they didn't play each other, I know, but I'm comparing them, and it, it's night and day. So it's uh, it's sad to see, but it's also impressive to see that that people can do this and we can replicate it. But we have to want to replicate it, right? We can't just be focused on my kid's this, my kid's that, my kid has to win. No, no, no. Boca Juniors didn't win their game. But you know who was the better team? Boca Juniors. So you know who, if they play again in a few years, I give them about two, three, four years, Boca Juniors is going to beat uh, Fluminense, who they play. I guarantee it. The only reason Fluminense won is because their kid... They had two kids the size of me, uh, and I'm. If you don't know, I'm six foot three and almost mm-hmm. 200 pounds. And so to have two kids that are U12 to have them the size of me is uh, well, no wonder why they won, right? So it's uh, yeah. In my opinion, Boca Juniors was the best team I saw, for sure. Well, touching on the Prospect Cup, I thought it was a very good tournament. I liked. It was very cool to see because it it's not really replicated in the same fashion. I mean, it was a really interesting experience. I mean, I've seen it before, but I'm sure for a lot of people, it was kind of like a I hope at least a mind opening or you know eye showing eye opening experience for people to learn that you you might play for a DA or you might play for the best thing in the country, and we're still not even close and. I agree 100% with Mitchell. I wish the tournament took a phase of intermixing or mixing the groups instead of just doing European versus American uh, and then the winners move on to the next round. I really wish that they put them in, in mixed so Manchester City got to play FC Dallas from the start. And I, I get why they did it. They wanted to show, give them a chance to play. But for me, if, if our teams were supposed to be the best, in the country, because that's pretty much who came out. Maybe not all of them, but a lot of them were supposed to be very good. And none of them came close. I mean, arguably the best team, or one of the best teams, at least in Florida, if not the country, in terms of a club, Weston, they got to play Man City in the final. And I watched that game. It wasn't it wasn't even close. I, as a soccer guy, and somebody who's been around the game for a long time, and anybody can go watch this game online for free, by the way. You can go to prospectcup.com. I guess it's prospects with an S, cup.com. Or you can go to their Facebook page and you can watch the games. And Man City from the start absolutely dominated that game. They scored within six minutes. And then me as a soccer person, I'm watching this game and you could tell that Man City didn't really leave second gear. They didn't even, after that, after the first goal, because... 
Weston really didn't pose a threat. I, it, for me, if you had to compare the teams, I think that Weston had one actual good field player. I think their goalie was pretty good. But one actual good field player who was number 23. And he, he was very self-aware. He checked his shoulders. The one thing that he didn't do too often was go forward, but he was able to keep possession of the ball, and they needed that because they didn't have the ball a lot. And it just, the level difference was huge. I mean, Man City, anytime they got the ball, immediately they looked to spread. They would look to create spaces to, to attack by trying to overload. So it was pretty much instilled through the philosophy of Pep Guardiola in terms of maintaining possession, recycling possession, and trying to find ways to unbalance the other team to create overloads. And if you look at soccer, soccer is a game of math. It's 1v1, 2v2, and... The best way to score outside of like set pieces is to create overloads, which is 3v2, or numerical advantages, so creating like a 3 versus 2, or a 4v2. So if you follow Pep Guardiola, Pep Guardiola and his philosophy, it's all about trying to recycle possession and trying to find ways to create overloads to unbalance the other team, and I thought Manchester City's team did a very good job at that. And... It was a very, uh, very impressed, absolutely very impressed. I think with the level of the Europeans from all of them, I mean, obviously there were some that were better than others, and that's going to happen, but you're talking about U12 kids, and most of them were very technically very good. Uh, actually, pretty much all of them were. And they were already understanding the tactical side of the game. So it was like, I mean, you're talking pretty much, in my opinion, one or two years already ahead of the American teams in terms of development, of player development, at least. And one thing that I want to talk about in particular, and this might come as a huge shock to everybody, is I, I didn't do this, but Octavio did. Went up and because he went up and spoke to the Real Madrid coach or one of the coaches, and he asked them about, do you guys do individual training? And he said, no, never. I don't know what other clubs do, but. For us, we never do individual training. It's all team-oriented. And, and what he means is they didn't do, like, individual technical work for one player. It was the group did technical work. The group did tactical work. So that's a common theme around Europe where the group, that team, is getting better together. And there's plenty of clubs around here in, in the country, really, where, again, you got one or two good kids, and then everybody else is well behind that level. They might be okay, but behind the level of that group. So, but, you know, he's sitting here explaining that they do everything together, they push the group up together, and everybody is getting better together and learning together. And that is a huge thing that's not being translated here, and, that, and that's hurting us. So, uh, talking about the final a little bit more, it ended up being City and Weston. City won 3-0, and again, it wasn't even close. Every time Weston got the ball, it, they were very, in my opinion, very compact like this, where anytime City got the ball, they were like this. Immediately, the two, I'd call them, they were fullbacks essentially, but they played like wingers. They would get very wide and try and go a little bit higher, which would open up the midfield spaces. The two center backs would split. And it was all about ball retention and creating overloads. And it was, it was really, really awesome to see. And Weston just wasn't even close. And again, this is supposed to be one of the best clubs in the country and they, in my opinion, got walked off the pitch, and it could have been 6 or 7-0. So they didn't have much of a threat. I think they had two or three shots, and they were minimal in terms of actual chances created. I'd call them more like half chances. So it, it, it was a very crazy kind of experience, and I hope a lot of people took that and said, wow, we have a lot of work to do. And that's, and that's what it should have been. 
So I do want to kind of highlight best players and worst players in terms of, in my opinion, of just that game. Number 10 got player of the tournament, which was definitely a unique experience, I'm sure, for him. Uh, I do think that for that game with, uh, with the City team, the two best players, in my opinion, I think there were really three of them, the two three best for number 10, and that, uh, I mean, he was a very big, very strong kid, technically very good, tactically good. Number three, who was their center back, in my opinion, if number 10 wasn't there, and it's kind of tough to say because he plays a center midfielder, but number three was rock solid, and he played center defender. And I don't just mean that in a, in a defensive type of standpoint. Technically, unbelievably good. Tactically, very good. Knew where to be, where to stand, where to connect passes, how to open up, how to create space for passing lanes. And it, it, it was pretty intense to see. In my opinion, the worst player was number nine, actually, who, who ended up being, and this is kind of hard to say, but he was the golden booty. He scored the most goals. But he didn't start, and he lost the ball every time. His movement as a striker wasn't good, but it was, it was a huge, 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 huge drop-off. But again, the level was pretty similar. I mean, every kid on that team was actually pretty good. There might have been a slight difference with some kids, but it, it was a huge thing. And then one other thing I haven't even said yet, every single player on that Man City team trust, trusted their teammates. So they stayed in their position. They waited for the balls to be threaded into those pockets where they could turn and play off of. And how many kids do we see if one team needs help, everybody like swarms in to help, right? I mean, we're talking Man City. Center backs got the ball. The defensive midfielders in his space. The wingers in his space. The left backs in his space. The strikers in space. Most American team players will come closer to try and support where these guys are staying in the spaces because they're trusting their teammate. And again, that is a huge thing that we don't have here, where players are being taught, hey, stay in these positions because you're creating space and you're allowing players to connect with you, to play off of you as well. And I, and I think that is a huge difference as well. So, it's crazy. Anything else you want to add on that? No, just uh, uh, trusting your teammates is uh, hugely important. I know right now for my U15 team, I'm going over that. Because every time, whenever one of them gets the ball, everybody else goes right next to him, goes, give me the ball, give me the ball, give me the ball. And I'm like, what do you do? And one player can mark all six of you. What what good does that do? And they're finally, I think, finally turning to understand that if they stay in the pockets behind the defenders where they get a split pass, which if you don't know what a split pass is, is if uh, the ball goes in between two defenders, and if they get that ball, they can turn and go at the defender or play the ball back, whatever the situation may happen or uh, is occurring around them. And I think trusting your teammates is the most important thing you can possibly do on the field. Uh, if you don't trust your teammate and you go stand right next to them, you now got one guy marking the both of you. And, well, that's easy to defend. That's two players out of the game, whereas it's only one player on the other team out of the game. And so they have... Well, as Kyle said, a numerical advantage, and that's not good. And you want to create the numerical advantages for yourself. And so I think we as a nation need to start understanding spaces more. We don't understand spaces and where to be and to trust your teammates to hit a 10-yard pass on the ground to you because by the time they're U15, they need to be able to hit a 10-yard pass on the perfectly to your foot. No problem. Uh, yeah, I think... That's all I really wanted to add to well, that. Well, I, I mean, I'm going to ask you this. I'll probably answer it myself, too. You're talking about wanting to go trust a teammate. Kids, you know, U12, how many of them do you think are actually good enough 
to be in a position to trust their teammate to hit that pass. Here in America? Yeah. Ah, uh, that's a fair point, but at the same time, they should be good enough, right? So we need to, uh, as, we, as we keep saying, re-evaluate uh, our situation and our system here in America because I think that all boils down to our systemic problems. Whereas we have this pay-to-play system, so we're demanding wins from U8 all the way to U18, and that's hurting development. I'll repeat it again. Demand, demanding wins hurts development. And it, uh, and I think that's the problem. A U12 player should be able to hit a 10-yard pass on the ground perfectly to someone's feet. If they can't, they didn't get the proper development. And we have to go back and look, why didn't they get the proper development? Like Kyle said earlier, the Real Madrid coach said they're all trained together, all getting developed together. At so, practice. Uh, at practice. At team at, practice. At practice. At practice. So if, we, if we're going back and we're looking, why is one player getting good but the other 10 or however many you have on your team aren't? We have to look at that. That's a serious problem. We shouldn't have one player here, two players here, three players all the way down here, and then the rest of them are so bad they're beneath the floor. We need to, we need to reevaluate what went wrong with our teams here in America because even on my team, I probably got four really good kids to some a few average and then some that are uh, I'm not sure why they're on the team and I'm not trying to bash anyone on my team I think all of them are great kids and all of them are good kids and can be really good but it's it's an unequal balance and I don't think they were getting the proper training I think they need that they need that training and they just for whatever reason the coach didn't give it to them and that's the issue we need to uh, make sure they're getting the right training from U8 or whenever they start all the way up to U18, U20, U22, U23, whatever they play, college, professional. They need to make sure we're, gi- we're giving them the right training. So we need to reevaluate our systemic problems and, re- and change them. Because there is huge systemic issues we have. And we'll, we'll be touching on that a little bit more, a little later, more than likely. Well, one thing I wanted to bring up is, again, almost every European team or international team, it's not even Europe, but they... Played the ball from the back. I can't remember watching one game, and I'm really trying to think where That's the keeper point. punted the ball. And I can't remember one instance where the keeper actually punted it. Me either. Every time the ball was played short on the ground to your center backs or left back, whoever the ball was received to, and those kids again are being taught how to play from the back. And that's something that 90% of our kids, and I'm comfortable with that number saying that, aren't. And Especially at that age, a little bit before, I guess, a lot of that is owed to the build-out line because we—I I know we've mentioned this—but with the build-out line, you're essentially removing that pressure that the kid has to deal with that, and you're saying, okay, you get a free pass out. It's a free pass out of jail card, really, or a free clear with no pressure. <laughs> yeah, free clear with no pressure, and or when he touches the ball, he's got five kids swarming at him. So you're really changing the thing where or changing the way the game should be played, Dynamic. in my opinion, and. The kids aren't learning to deal with the pressure, whereas their players, and that's why I think number three, for example, is was that good for Manchester City, because he could handle that kind of pressure. He's used to, he's comfortable with it. He was able to play with it. The amount of times that he had to deal with a 1v1, not so much in that game, but just in general, because I've watched some of the games in, in online, and the amount of times he had to deal with a 1v1, win the ball, and then play out from there, and not just clear it, was like... He's comfortable with those situations. And 
how many of our kids, and we can use a percentage again, but let's just say maybe 10% are comfortable with playing in a situation like that of having to deal with a player one versus one defensively, win the ball, and be able to play out from the back. And not many, especially at that age, are. Most of them will just kick it out of bounds, clear it, kick it to the other team, whatever the situation is, and remove the pressure instead of dealing with the pressure. And I think that's again, is a big change. Uh, there's a couple comments that have come in, one from Octavio. Yes, but it was one of the best teams in the world, but the game IQ was significantly, no, significantly noticeably different between U.S. and European teams. Yeah, Octavio was. You're right. It was definitely, they are definitely one of the best teams in the world for sure, but shouldn't we be holding, you know, our team to that standard? I think so. I mean, if we're going to talk about being a good country, as a, and this kind of comes back to what's the goal of U.S. soccer? Are we, are we here to become, you know, one of the best countries in the world? Or are we... Okay with being where we are. Yeah, are we okay with being where we're at? Because if, if it's one or the other, then we need to figure it out quick. I mean, if we're okay with where we are, we don't need to change anything. We, I mean, if we're happy with not qualifying for the World Cup, we don't need to change anything. But if we're not happy with it, we got to change something. Yeah, and so my thing's messing around here. Trying to look at the other questions that were brought in. Oh, Steve said something. What is this thing doing? Sorry. Uh, Steve said something about the ability to deal with technical ability and actual player development. And, yeah, we need to make sure that player development's there, focusing on technique and making sure the kids have fun. And I think that's another thing that a lot of people are struggling with is the fun aspect for, for players. And there is one thing that I want to touch into that Steve actually shared to me was the uh, an article about a big drop-off in soccer and how almost basically a million kids, a little bit less than a million, have actually dropped out of soccer between the ages of 6 and 12. They're not playing the game anymore. And that is a whole other concern in itself that if we don't find a solution for, because the game isn't as fun anymore, there's pressure because of the wins, more and more kids are going to drop out. And it's going to, again, hurt the overall game and stop the U.S. from continuing to, to prosper. So those are a couple of things. I'm trying to get this page pulled up so I can look at the comments again. But that is a, is a huge, huge, huge change and difference for everybody and for us. And if we don't, if we don't find a way to, to find a way to make, to, to make our, our players better at, at all levels, similar to what Europe's doing, we're not going to compete. But if we don't keep it fun for the kids, they're not going to play. And, and that's why kids play, because it's fun. Now, if you jump into a competitive level, I think that the game's still going to be fun, absolutely. But it's still got to be more challenging. You're, you're talking about kids that are looking to go to college and looking to go play and looking to go play professional. So there's a lot of, there's a lot there. Now back to Steve's thing. Let me see here. Back to Steve's scene, uh, thing. It's a striking balance between the 1v1 technical ability and the 2v1 overloads thought process, pr thought process, both on and off the ball. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, Steve, right. Uh, how many how many players pass, especially in America, they pass and do what, Mitchell? Stand. Stand still, and they don't they don't actively get back involved in the play. They they check out of the phase of play, and. If you looked at Man City, they'd pass and they'd immediately move off the ball to try and create an overload and trying to create those those situations. So that's something that again is is really frightening. And you can't win a game without creating overloads to try and to create goal scoring opportunities because I've seen plenty of games, and I'm sure Mitchell has too, and Steve and anybody else that watches soccer, where it's like one kid versus four or two versus six. I mean I remember watching a high school game 
and there's three really good players on one team, and the other teams know this, so they sit eight back. And it's like three versus eight. Those odds are completely stacked against you. You have to be able to get more players up to huh? create overloads to score. You're telling me that three didn't win? No. Well, incredible. Maybe they. Uh, well, maybe they they won in a sense that they got a couple nutmegs or something. But huh. getting past getting past to create a goal scoring opportunity is not going to happen without creating creating overloads. And that's exactly why Pep Guardiola, in my opinion, has been so successful at Man City because they recycle possession. And they look to find opportunities to unbalance the other team by creating overloads. And that starts with movement off the ball. And let's see here. Octavio said, I think the most disappointing thing is that our teams truly didn't know how to play when they don't have the ball. Yeah, that's disappointing. De definitely is disappointing. But they also didn't know how to play with the ball. I, I mean, I remember watching the Real New Jersey team. I think that's what they were called. The keeper picked the ball up. I don't know if they're a DA club or not, but, and Mitchell can attest to this too, is when the goalkeeper got the ball, every time but once, he went to punt it right away. And it was a one versus two or one versus three. And again, if you don't have numerical advantage to support that or even more numbers up, one player, let's just say, what, 95% of the time, maybe higher, 98, he's not going to win, especially at this level because he's, he could be unbelievably good at this level or at this age, one versus two, again, you're well behind the odds to, to deal with that. So half the time this keeper would pick up the ball, punt it immediately, and nothing would come of it except the other team would regain possession. That was FC Dallas. Well, it's funny you say that. While we were on the topic, I wanted to bring this up anyway. We were watching Boca Juniors versus Fluminense. Every time they got the ball, whether it was a goal kick or the keeper got it, what did he do? Straight away out of the back, played it to one of his defenders. And then we fast forward. Oh, and before we fast forward a little bit, they didn't lose the ball in the back. That just didn't happen, right? They, they didn't lose the ball. They were able to play out of the pressure and play forward. And then once they got forward and it was not a numerical advantage, which we keep talking about, or an overload, they lost the ball, which is going to happen if you can't create overloads. Mm -hmm. But that's besides the point that I'm trying to make. But then we fast forward to the uh, New Jersey, no, Real Jersey and FC Dallas game. The first time the Real Jersey keeper got the ball, straight away, whew, and it was like two seconds. Yeah, he it, picked that thing he didn't, up and just he didn't, slammed it. He didn't, he didn't try to play out of the back. He, he didn't, didn't think about he it. He didn't. He just went, so, oh, there's the 18-yard line. I think it was line. a cross, wasn't it? <laughs> I don't I think, I'm pretty sure because they had, SC Dallas had that number seven kid who could really whip it. Probably. Oh, and yeah. I remember I could just when the keeper caught it, immediately just went, bing, and just smacked that and, thing immediately down the line. It's not, not against the striker. The striker could have been really good, but he's 1v2 against two pretty tall, big kids in the back. He's And he wasn't the biggest kid, their striker. So he's, not, he's more than likely not going to win the ball out of the air. And that's the issue we're facing here. I think FC Dallas played out of the back or tried to most of the times. And they were successful because Real Jersey really sat off of them, let them attack. But I would have liked to see them try that against a better team. Uh, mm -hmm. See how they would have done. Because I remember watching the guy playing the number six for FC Dallas. And he, was, he didn't have the right body positioning. He didn't ever look over his shoulder to see if someone's behind him. I remember one time... He literally was facing the ball. The ball came from his right back. He was facing the ball. He got the ball. He then looked and then turned. Right there, he, waited. he wasted three seconds, at least three seconds on the ball because he looked after he touched the ball. First of all, if you look after you touch the ball, I control the ball. I look right. Next thing I know, someone comes around my left shoulder, steals the ball, and is going. So, that, I mean, right there, that's one second. Boom, he's gone. 
and now I don't have the ball, my whole team's defending, and which is another important reason why you have to look beforehand, because if you look after, someone go around the other shoulder, steal it, and then also it's, it's too late. I mean, if the other team's high-pressing, it's just too late. You're going to get killed. I mean, someone's going to fly in and tackle at you, and you're going to have no idea because you're looking. Oh, crap, I see him coming. Oh, well, I'm out. And they, I'm hurt now, right? So it's, there's a lot of issues with looking after you receive the ball. One, I mean, you're wasting more time, right? You get the ball. Now you got to look both sides. All right, now I can turn. I know it's safe. So you're wasting at least three seconds right there. By the way, three seconds is huge in the game of soccer. Now that could be... Especially considering that, for example, and this is extreme, but the Premier League, the average amount of time a player had when he received the ball was 2.2 seconds or 2.3 seconds. So if you need three seconds, you've already immediately under pressure and it's too late. Uh, so uh, just something to think about. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, that, like Kyle said, that could be the difference between scoring a goal and getting a goal scored on you. And, like, that's... That might sound extreme, but it, it, it's it's serious, right? You're wasting three seconds. Three seconds is huge. And then, again, I'm looking right. Someone comes left after I've received the ball. The third one, I received the ball. Now I'm looking, oh, crap, there's a challenge. I'm dead. Uh, so uh, Well, and I think also very important that you, didn't ha- you haven't highlighted yet is body position. Yeah. And I remember watching, I think it was the FC Dallas number six, like you were just talking about, He's the goalkeeper has the ball, he's playing it from the back, he plays it straight towards him, but he's facing the goalie. Like you said, didn't check his shoulder, didn't have any idea. Imagine if Real New Jersey pressed him. I mean, he would have been in trouble. He had no idea. I mean, he got lucky for sure that Real Jersey just sat off of him. And right there, that, again, is why body position is so important in in soccer. Because if you have a correct body position, a lot of times it's, it's a half turn. You can see what's coming around you. And when a player doesn't have that body position, like in this case, if I'm if Mitchell's my goalkeeper and I'm facing him and I haven't checked my shoulders, one, I'm already in trouble because I'm facing the wrong way. Two, I haven't looked, so I have no idea what's coming behind me. And three, you should almost never turn. In fact, Xavi says this. Xavi, who played for Barcelona, he said he would never turn if he had no idea what was around him or behind him. So if he received the ball, again, from Mitchell, Mitchell plays me the ball here and I'm Chavi and I hadn't looked, he said he'd never turn. He always played the ball back the way it came and then immediately he would scan for information if he could pick up the ball then and turn. And a lot of times that just starts by being on a half turn or in a a certain correct body position for for that circumstance because if you're in the right body position in that circumstance, the opportunity to see is abundantly more clear. It's a lot easier. If you're standing the wrong way, again, if Mitchell's my goalkeeper and I'm facing him, I have no idea. i got to check one shoulder to see one side, then check the other shoulder to see the other side. If I'm on a half turn already, I don't have to check a shoulder. I can just turn my head, quick glance, boom, it's over. And those are little things that, those are small details, minor, minor details that add up to the, the success of a player and the success of a team. And those things will make a big, 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 big difference. So, sorry to interrupt you there, bud. But No, it's all right. I'll just get into that. Uh, so, yeah, what he said was right. Body positioning matters. It's true. Any good coach will tell you. <laughs> and that's one of the things that, again, you saw from Man City and Boca. And Mitchell hadn't even talked about this yet, about the Boca game. My opinion, too, they were the better team. However, <laughs> Fluminense had two guys that were as big as me. And one of them was probably bigger than me in terms of just body size, body mass. 
So, I mean, he looked 14, and right away you're like, yeah, I mean, Boca Juniors could be the better team. Nine times out of ten they're going to lose just because this Fluminense had two guys that were big, strong, and fast. And at that age, that you know, that's everything. At the pro level, it doesn't reflect as much. I mean, there's still some huge differences, like with pure speed and, and size. But at that age, when you got somebody that's big, strong, and fast with technique, some of it, and and tactical awareness, the game it's a game changer. Absolute game changer. Well, you bring that up. I remember I was watching the defender. I think it was number three. I mean, he was able to think so much quicker than Boca Juniors. He knew that, oh, he saw them, and he goes, oh, he's going to pass this way. So he stepped there. Next thing you know, the ball went right to him. And, yeah, it was it was a little skeptical, to be honest. Like I said <laughs> like I said earlier, he, he was about the size of me. He really was. Okay. He was... Uh, I'm I'm not no I'm not a slouch. I'm six foot three, if not just under, and about two hundred pounds. And he and he looked as full as I did. And I'm twenty two. So I mean the fact that he's supposedly U twelve and the size of me is well very suspicious. Uh but yeah. Alright, so moving on to a comment we got from Steve to Octavio's point, we need to give the kids at a younger age the opportunity to make decisions at practice. And the freedom to make mistakes in a game as long as we oh, assist yeah. them to truly learn from the decisions. Practice should emulate games, the pressure, chaos, stress, unpredictability. At age-appropriate level, too many coaches, and he put in quote, uh, parentheses, and parents, see the game in a one-dimensional way. Yes. Could not agree more, Steve. And that one-dimensional way is winning. Winning being the ultimate reward. Kick it. How many people remember... And I'll ask you this question, Mitchell, because it's a good point that Steve brought up. How many people will remember, or how many trophies do you remember that you won at U9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, or 15, for example, or for starters? I know I got a lot of trophies. That's it. I don't. I couldn't tell you a thing about a game or a, how we won the trophy. I just see the trophies in my room now and go, oh, cool, I won a trophy when I was 10. Nice. I mean, I barely remember a tournament... And I just remember it because it was a big tournament at the time. We, I remember being a nine-year-old and we won Jefferson Cup. And that was like the biggest tournament in Virginia at that time. But again, like Mitchell, I couldn't tell you how we won, what we won, how we I mean, won it. They're like, the only thing I remember is winning State Cup here in Florida and I was 17. So, so I mean, right there. Again, tournaments at this age or trophies don't matter. I mean, it, it's obviously a cool experience for everybody involved, especially coaches and parents and players. But... And don't get us wrong, we obviously love winning. Right? Yeah. When we coach, we want to go out and win every game, but we understand it's not going to happen that we have to put the kids first. Right? Yeah. Uh, if my team, if Well, my their U- development first. Yeah, that, that's what I mean by kids first. If my U15 doesn't win, of course I'm going to be upset, but am I going to bash them? No. You know, I'm going to be disappointed that, look, you guys should have done this, that, and the other thing. And I would explain to them why we didn't win, what we needed to do, and if it was just because they didn't have, they weren't on their day-to-day, you know what? That happens. Sometimes, even professionals, let's look at Manchester United, have not been on their day for a little while now. And huh. they go, they just they just keep slipping, and it, and it happens from the worst level all the way up to the best level. So, I um, mean, you just got to look at it, and, and don't yell at them, don't embarrass them, don't hurt their feelings, which everyone seems to do now, as... Uh, <laughs> And uh, just just let the kids play, and then and then after the game, explain like, look, this is why we lost. We needed to do this instead, and explain why you needed to do this. So whether it was my fullbacks didn't go high enough or wide enough, I would explain, look, we need to go higher and wider, higher and wider when we have the ball because X, Y, and Z. 
for so on and so forth. So you need to explain what to do and why they have to do it. Because if you don't explain why, kids will never understand. Kids will never get it. So you have to tell them why. It's just like teaching. Now, I want to ask you this because you just brought up fullbacks. I saw a team out at this tournament with a different group. And they they used or tried to use, implement it, I should say. They tried to implement Pep's inverted fullback. Where they tucked inside? Yeah, and play like center midfielders when they have the ball. What do you think? Inverted fullbacks. A win or no? I think so. I, I think what it is... I Look, I think Pep's a genius. Uh, I think this is his third go-around at reinventing the game. I think he reinvented the game when he was at Barcelona. I think he reinvented the game when he was at Bayern Munich. And I think he's reinventing the game now. When you say reinventing the game, he's doing the same thing every time. So what's reinventing it? Why do you keep saying reinventing? Well, he didn't. Danny Alves and Eric Albadell never tucked inside. David Alaba and Philip Lahm never tucked inside. Okay, and so then what was the difference between Bayern and I think, Barca? I think Barca was a lot more tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. I, I don't think we saw the same at Bayern Munich. I think what Bayern Munich did a lot was... Well, they also had a 100% better squad than anybody. Well, that's true, too. I mean, Bayern Munich had, uh, I mean, just out ballers. Mm-hmm. Barcelona had out ballers. I think the biggest difference is Man City doesn't have all-out ballers. I think you put them against Real Madrid, Barcelona, and uh, Bayern Munich, they might find some struggles, but I think they will come out victorious. But, I mean, I just think each time when I mean reinvent, he comes up with uh, new tactics, right? I mean, at Barcelona, it was different than Bayern Munich. At Bayern Munich, it's different at... Uh, than it is at right now I in mean, the city. Definitely the inverted fullbacks is a. I mean, I watched that the first time. I'm like, I, I mean, I thought, look, just play the ball wide and you're you're golden. But now I see it. It's. I think it's a genius thing. I think it's it's allowing more freedom. Well, you get more numbers in the middle. You get more numbers you in the middle. Try and isolate somebody out wide. But it, what it also does is it one on one out wide, yeah. and then it allows your center midfielders to go higher. Yeah. So and now you're creating numerical advantages everywhere Mm. it's not just on one side so now it's not just if you have more guys on the right side that's where your numerical advantage is it's you can go through the middle you'll have a numerical advantage you go through the left you have a numerical advantage you go through the right you have a numerical advantage and what it does it really allows Kevin De Bruyne and David Silva his best center his best playmakers by far freedom right so what will happen is you'll get Guero Sterling or um Jesus checking to the ball to play him, and Kevin De Bruyne or someone else is running in behind, and and it's just creating overloads that teams are struggling to find solutions for. And and I think I really think it's it's genius, and I think it's definitely something more teams need to look at adopting. I but I think they need to find the players to do so. I think he's got the players to do so for sure. I mean, how many people would have thought of that? Nobody. I mean, nobody did it. I mean, I saw that and I'm like... Yeah, I thought it was stupid at first. I'm like, look, just play the ball wide and you're golden. But then I realized everyone's got to be back. Hmm. Right? Hmm. Like when he played against Manchester... When the the United uh, Manchester Derby happened, I was like, guys, just play the ball high and wide. But I realized where Rashford and Martial were. They were deep and inside. Hmm. They, they had to cover. Yeah, so you can't play the ball wide. The only way they could play out is Lukaku. Hmm. Well, let's be honest, Lukaku hasn't been good enough lately, so... <laughs> So definitely changed, definitely changed it. I mean, like Mitchell said, first time I was like, what is this? I'm like, yeah, I couldn't was, believe this. I couldn't believe it either. And now, after seeing it for like two or three games, you're like, now it, it really hits home and you understand the overloads, the numerical advantages, the re- ball retention capabilities, the way to find lanes to play because you're essentially putting out more players to the middle but allowing those two guys 
And you'll see uh, pros, they don't do it as much for some reason. But they call it like touching the chalk, getting your getting your boots, uh, what's the term, getting your boots chalked up or something like that. I can't remember exactly the phrase, but like on the chalk, on the get paint. whites on your boots. Yeah, that's what it is, whites or something on your... And that essentially means staying on the touchline. But you'll watch a lot of pro games, and players aren't Chalked on the touchline. Chalk on touch your line. boots. Chalk on is. your boots. That's what it is. And how many players aren't on the touchline, you know, holding the line? But, you know, most of Pep's players that are playing winger, they're on that touchline holding that line. Sané, Sterling. So that's a, a, another huge thing, and well, inverted fullbacks has been a revelation. One thing you said, I mean, you said numerical advantages and overloads, is it's freedom. I mean, it really allows his midfielders to be free. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he can have Fabian Delph come inside, who's naturally a center midfielder, play that deeper-lying midfielder, it really allows Kevin De Bruyne yeah. and David Silva to be free and go forward. Well, it also helps him press. Oh, yeah. lose the ball. For sure, yeah. If, if the other team's pinned back so far, like Mitchell said, the one thing they could really, real big option is just slam it. And most of the time that doesn't work, as explained earlier, because of the 2v1 situation. It's not not a good outlet, so most teams end up trying to play out, and Man City are so good at the press that they just get... They're finding five players on one guy, yeah. and, they, and the one guy has the ball, and they're, he's screwed. And, but the one thing I want to bring up, is, and this is why I brought it up, is because I know a group that had tried the inverted fullbacks, and it didn't work. They, tried for like, they did like two practices, and they tried a game. You need to implement this over like months. So if you if it doesn't work the first time, that's completely understandable and it's gonna happen. It's not gonna work the second time, the third time, the fourth time. You might start seeing it the fifth time, maybe by the sixth. But if you don't practice it, it's never going to happen, and it's not a natural thing. I mean, I remember when Pep first came, sorry, Mitchell came into uh, City. He said it's gonna take three months at least for everybody to understand my concepts of what I'm gonna do, and they train essentially every single day. So imagine kids. You're telling them to do something. They're not going to get it right away. No. It's going to take a lot of time, and it's going to take a lot of hours for them to get the concepts. And this goes from anything from where to be on the field to how to dribble, how to beat somebody 1v1, how to pass, how to shoot, all these techniques that most kids don't get. And it takes a lot of time to build that. Well, it's funny you say it takes time. I mean, he did he implemented that his first year, last year. And where did they finish? Fourth? Mm-hmm. Third? And so they didn't have a great running, right? And, and that just really shows that, look, you, you, can, you can try to implement something and you can't expect it to work the next day, the next game. It's just not going to happen. I mean, it took these pros. Now, let's be honest, his goalkeeper has really helped him out. His huh. right back has really helped him out. Uh, but so you, you still got to – so it's not just having the players necessity or the, the required players to play this way, but it's also – it's going to take time, right? So if I bring in, let's just for example, I bring in four new players to my team. They're, they have to, I have to now break them off of their new coach, whatever they're used to from their new coach, and then I can start implementing my ways, right? So f- for example, this new team I just got, I gotta cut everything the new, the old coach taught them what to do. I'm, I gotta break them down. Everything. Everything. Oh Lord. Everything. I mean, it was that bad. I got it. everything. It has to. I have to literally break them down. Not literally break them down. I'm not. They're not going to start crying or anything. But I'm going to break their shell, their mold from their old coach. I mean, it's like when Jose Mourinho came in after Louis Van Gaal. He had to get rid of everything Louis Van Gaal taught them and start over again. It's the same thing from Pep Guardiola. And it's now. So that's something you have to do. And I'm actually going to try this with my new team because I think one, they can do it. 
So I'm going to see how that goes. And I'm going to give it one whole season. And if I go, eh, you know what, that's just not working. Talk about inverted pullbacks? Yeah. I think I think my team's got the players and the capabilities to do it. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to implement it the second we're allowed to go on the big field and do that. I'm going to start working on that straight away. But uh, yeah, so I, I, I'm excited to try it, and I think it's going to be good. But you just remember, it takes time, right? No kid becomes messy after the first practice. Messi wasn't messy overnight, right? It just didn't. He well, didn't, his name was always messy. Well, his name was always messy, but he's, he wasn't ever the same player. He didn't just wake up one day and go, you know what? I'm going to be the best player ever today. He worked. He worked. He it, worked. it takes a lot. I mean, let, let's talk about the story about Ronaldo. Sir Alex Ferguson once said that Ronaldo was there three hours before I practice. He was there three hours after practice. And that's something that we don't have in America, right? We get a few kids that are there all the time. But how often do it after, if the team's not practicing that day, the kids are at home playing Call of Duty, playing FIFA, what, I mean, whatever it is, instead of going out and practicing their skills. I know we got a few here. I mean, I see, I'll go to the field, I'll do some private coaching, and I'll see some kids there on their side doing stuff on their own. And it's something we don't have. So, I mean, Ronaldo spent six hours every day practicing when he didn't have practice. Now, albeit he's a professional player, so he gets the freedom to practice six hours. Sure, your kid shouldn't go home and practice six hours a day when his team, even if his team has practice, your kid should not be doing that. That's not what I am saying. But what I am saying is that every day they need to be playing for at least an hour. And that's something we don't have here in America. We don't have that. Some kids, yes. Most kids, no. And I think that's what's really one of the reasons that's stunting our growth as a soccer-playing country. And I think that's a... Well, there's one point I want to get to, or a comment, really. Mike Wilson said, the idea behind the build-out line, I don't know, Mike, if you're still on here, is correct. The execution is very poor. Yes. So I'm curious to your thoughts on that and what could be done to make it better. So if you're still in here, let us know and get back to us, and we'll move on to the next topic. And it, it ties in perfectly to what Mitchell just said in terms of always practicing and always getting better. The After the Prospect Cup tournament, there was like a Chris, uh, Christian Pulisic challenge or Christian Pulisic, I don't know what word it was called, but I don't remember what it was called, but it was like a, an event with Christian Pulisic and I believe his parents. And there was a video that they released before the final game between Man City and Weston where he came up and he like spoke to all the boys and stuff at the tournament and... You know, they ask, ask them questions and all this kind of stuff. And one of the things he said, one of the things was, what, what would you recommend for the kids if they want to be great or become better or, you know, whatever? And he said, always have a ball. He said, when you, when, I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said, you know, when you're at home, take a ball with you. When you go to school, take a ball with you. When you're doing anything, take a ball with you because you're getting more touches, you're practicing different things with the ball. And how many kids actually do that? Not many. Most kids have to be told to go to practice, or most kids have to be told to do that. And that's fine, but the ones that really want to play are going to always have the ball at their feet. And I think that's kind of why the whole thing, the story about Ronaldo, kind of ties perfectly into this, is the best players, the players that want to be the greatest, want to be the best, are willing to sacrifice, so to speak, and do less, quote-unquote, fun stuff now in terms of, you know, the easy stuff in terms of playing FIFA or playing Minecraft or whatever the situation is, so they're doing something else that's more... Well, it's, it's funny you say that. I mean, when, we, when we're when we at home, how often do we have a ball at our feet? 
I mean, all the time. I have a ball right here I use all the time. Yeah, I don't I mean, even play. So it's just funny, right? It's It, it depends on what kind of person. Look, not every kid's going to want to play professional soccer. Not every kid's going to want to be the best player in the world. And that's fine, right? You need the kids that just like the game and or want to play the game to grow the game and to be fans of the kids who want to play professional soccer. Not not when they're kids, but when they become professionals. That's when That's when those kids who just like it are really important. And that's fine, but the kids who want to go on and play professional, they always have to have a ball. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've told my teams this. You need to have a ball. You need to be touching it every day for at least an hour. And even then, in my opinion, an hour isn't enough. You need to be out there two hours and just really focus on touching the ball. Look, going out and shooting is great. You need to work on your shooting. We get that. And shooting is more fun than anything else. But just shooting isn't going to get you better. Sure, you might be able to take a hell of a free kick. You might be able to put it up or 90, 10 times out of 11. But are you going to be a complete player? No. Are you going to be able to dribble someone? No. Are you going to be able to pass? No. If you're not working on it, if you're not doing it, how are you going to become how are you going to be able able to perform it in the game? So it's it's yes, you got to do shooting, but you also got to dribble, you also got to pass, you also got to just be creative. Right? That's something that, like, I, I, I have said this all the time. Every single kid, whether they suck or they're phenomenal or anywhere in between, is creative. They all try to do something with the ball. Now, it may not always work out, but they always try. But they have the freedom to do it. Yeah. They, we, ha- we need to allow them to be free, to be able to express themselves. And going back on the build-out line, I remember when I was coaching my U8 team, we were in the, a bazooka tournament. And one of my better players, his name's Caleb, uh, some of you may know him, uh, received the ball from, he was playing left back at the time, he received the ball from a goal kick, he controlled the ball, what did he do? Up and over the on-rushing defender, or attacker, or whatever you want to call him, up and over, runs around him, and is able to play out. And I want to ask, how many kids do we know would feel free to do something like that? Did I yell at him? Nope. Wait, and, hold on, hold on, sorry. Uh, we got to give a shout out, Brian Pregano. Yeah. Just join the group, join the thing. Oh yeah. What's up, Brian? What up, Brian? Long time no see, man. I heard you went to Johnson University, Florida. How'd that go? Let us know in the comments, and we'll give you a shout out again. So thanks for joining, Brian. Let us know what you think. And then uh, Mike Wilson actually just replied, so I guess he's still in here about the build-out line. So same thing. Goal kicks are a s- systemic point of weakness for teams under. About U12, the idea behind the build-up line is to remove that weakness, which is the right idea. Unfortunately, the build-up line really only introduced another, but somewhat similar weakness. <laughs> that uh, systemic weakness needs to be removed, but the build-up line is not the right way. I'm going to put this out right now. Mike Wilson for U.S. Soccer President. Oh, well I like it. That was well said, and definitely right, but... I think with the build-out line, you're, you're, like you said, you're creating a whole nother problem, and that's not allowing kids to just deal with the pressure of the game. And, and most teams anyways, and outside of U12, U12 and older, they all they look to do is just boot the ball anyways. So I think U.S. soccer needs to jump in and say, look, stop booting the ball, let's put the ball down and play. And Get rid of key in the ball. When... Yeah. when I went to when I coached in France. One of the games we played, the rule was you 
one of the rules that was implemented was you couldn't kick the ball. The keeper wasn't allowed to punt the ball, I mean. And he had to throw it out. Now, he could throw it further than... He couldn't throw a pass midfield, but he didn't have to give it straight to a center back or a left back or whatever the situation was. He could hit it a little bit longer than that, but the kids then had to deal with it. Where with this build-up line, you could throw it to somebody in the build-up line, he doesn't have to deal with the pressure, and that's the problem. Well, you know what that reminds me is we're sitting here talking about creativity, but that's the build-up line is stifling goalkeeper's creativity, right? If you think about it, the goalkeeper now only has two options to pass to, the right back or the left back. Which one is he going to choose? Whereas if you get rid of the build-out line and say, okay, behind half field, he can now throw it to the striker. He can throw it to the right mid, the left mid, the center mid. And so now you're giving him the yeah, you're improving options. his decision-making. Yeah. So and you're allowing him to be creative. And going back to what I was talking about is how many kids, especially at a UA level, would feel free to dribble 1v1 after just receiving the ball from his goalkeeper in a goal kick? Not many. Hmm. But here's the thing with our pra- my practices that I did with them. They only ever had a ball. I think we did passing two or three times in one whole year. And so that allowed him to feel comfortable enough with the ball to flick it over the onrushing attacker Mm. or defender. And and that's something we need to start implementing nationwide. Well, and with, you know, goalkeeper, he collects the ball, he's got six seconds. Well, not anymore. They got rid of that rule. What do you mean? They got rid of the six-second rule. People did a little while ago. They no longer technically have six seconds. Are you serious? Yeah. First I've heard of it. I guess i got to look that up. Okay, so apparently there's no longer a six-second rule, however I thought there was, but let's just use that rule for one second. Let's pretend it still exists. If the goalkeeper picks up the ball, he has six seconds to play it, and then he's now got to improve his speed of thought, his ability to process something, because he has to make a decision quicker now. With the build-out line, the decision's already made for him. He's got to pass left or right. Without a build-out line, the other team's free to press, to, and then you have to make a decision as a goalkeeper who, where to put the ball. So if there's no build-out line rule, I mean a uh, time limit rule, is there is there time at all, or they just got rid of it completely? From my understanding, and I was told this I think by a referee, that they got rid of it completely. So a keeper can hold the ball on forever? No, they're still going to call it, but it's no, no longer like official rule. Yeah. So it's more of like a... Everyone knows. I mean, that's essentially what it was anyway. Moral rule kind of thing. No one was ever like, all right, it's six seconds. Other ball. ball. I guess you learn something new every day. Now, uh, Brian said, it went great. Thank you, Coach. Uh, So, Brian, are you going to commit to the school, or what is your next step? And second question to that, Brian, when are you available to feature on the show? Let us know, because I think it would be great to have you on here and just kind of share your story Maybe of working with us or not, and your experiences with soccer, because it uh, sounds like you've had a good journey, especially if you've got a soccer college tryout, so that's pretty cool. So congratulations for you, and I hope it went well. And back to the Christian Pulisic event at the Prospect Cup. I want to bring this up, and it really relies on Octavio's son, Anthony, and Ingrid's son, Luca, who actually got a chance to go in and train with him, I think it was like 50 kids or something, and they got in, which is obviously a very cool experience. They, one of the things they did, I believe is one of the first challenges I wasn't there for, but I was told this, was that they had to do a juggling challenge. The first, first, if not, one of the first, if not the first one was a juggling challenge, which Anthony won, or was one of the best ones, and the... 
how many teams, clubs, organizations, whatever it is, private trainers you could use, actually go out and teach kids juggling? And that and that's kind of why I want to bring this topic up because even there they're doing juggling. And isn't there one sign sign out sports? Sign out, yeah, sign sign in sign win. Sign That'd in baseball. Sign in sports. Sign in baseball. Yeah. So <laughs> it's uh, here's a story for you guys, and I've told some people this, not everybody. When I was 14, I was the first ever American kid to go on trial with Olympic Lyonnais, and the very first challenge the coach gave me when he when he came over here uh, in, at an event he did, and I got called out to do this was at 14. By the way, not older, I had to do 50 right foot juggles, only right, 50 left foot juggles, 50 both feet, and 50 headers. Now here's the catch, right? That sounds like a lot. Of course it's a lot. 50 right, 50 left, it's 100. 50 both, 150. and then 50 headers. 200. Now again, here's the catch. I couldn't drop the ball, so I had to transition from 50 right to 50 left to 50 both, and then to 50 headers. So you're talking about... 200 juggles in a kind of like an order. And, again, that's not easy. I mean, how many kids do we know that could do that many in that order? 50, 50, 50, 50, 50. And it's actually funny because I just talked to him. I just talked to him last week about a player. And literally the very first question he asked me, he goes, uh, I was like, hey, Joel, I got a guy, I want you, a kid I want you to look at. And he goes, first question. Send me a video of him juggling. And I said, why? He's like, I need to make sure his technique's right, because juggling's paramount, as you know. And I said, you're talking about one of, you could argue, one of the best youth coaches in the world for player development. I mean, this guy has developed, played a role in development for Martial, for Benzema, for Ben Arfa, for Lacazette, for Grenier, for Lloris. And Titi. Titi. I mean, you're, you're talking top, top players that are playing for some of the best clubs in the world. And the very first thing he asked me was juggling. Send me a video of his juggling. Or first first thing he talked about was juggling. And he said, can he play? And that shows to me, and I hope to everybody else with this story that I'm giving you, the paramount importance of, of juggling and, and how important it can be for players. So, at this challenge with Christian Pulisic, they did it. Coaches around the world seem to be asking for it. And yet most people, most kids, don't know how to juggle at all. And just for a quick highlight of this, juggling helps with ball control, first touch, flexibility, coordination, and balance. The five key things, and I'll even add two more just for you guys, lucky, is it helps with shooting, dribbling, and even passing. And really with shooting and dribbling, because it's the same technique if you do juggling right. If you juggle with the laces, you shoot typically with the shoelaces, and you dribble Hopefully with the shoelaces. So uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe I've seen some people dribble with like ducks. Ducks like or like the what was that one thing? The messy. Oh yeah. Oh, don't forget the outside, outside, outside yeah. switch of feet. So you know, there's a lot of it, it's paramount, paramount of importance for players. So it's a it's very it's very 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 important. Brian just announced I'm going to uh, commit 100 percent. It's a great college. Well, I guess you really said collage. I'm free every day. It would be great to, to be featured on the show. Brian, absolutely. 
Uh, don't think we're going to have a show next week since it's New Year's Eve. If we do, it'll be earlier in the day. So it'll be Sunday. We might do like noon, but we're going to confirm that. Um, so we won't be doing a 6 o'clock show. That's for definitely sure. Now, uh, congratulations. I hope everything goes well for you. And I'll just, be playing you. <laughs> yeah, Mitchell might be playing against you. That'd be cool. And just remember who helped you, bud. No, I'm kidding. I mean, we did help you, bud. That's for another story. So, yeah, let us know. Uh, if we can't do this weekend, maybe the next one would be fun to have you. And we're actually looking to have a couple people. And maybe we just do like a big group one. That'd be, that'd be pretty fun to just talk about soccer. So let us know, Brian. I hope you're enjoying the show at least. And have a Merry Christmas. So we're going to kind of wind down here. we got a couple topics left. Not really, really two. And they should hopefully go pretty quickly for us. <laughs> Probably not. Um, so, yeah, we talk a lot. Especially when it comes to soccer. So the next thing we want to get into is... This one's my favorite. Maybe you guys have heard about this or not. And it kind of started when the U.S. missed the World Cup, but or didn't qualify for the World Cup, really. Uh, Sunil Galati has decided to step down. He's not running again. As U.S. soccer president, so he will not run again. And some of us might call that a blessing since he's been there for so long, and it's definitely time for change. So that's good. Now... There's a few people running. I'll let Mitchell call out the list because I want to make sure I get all the names right. But it's a it's a interesting list to say the least. So I'm gonna start with Hope Solo has announced she is running for U.S. Soccer President. I saw that on her Facebook. Eric Winalda has announced that he's uh, running for president. <laughs> don't vote for him if you know how to vote. Don't do it. Tom Martino also running for U.S. Soccer President. Let me tell you, this list is just getting better and better. Grant Wall, guys, yeah, the uh, journalist is running for U.S. soccer president. Don't vote for him. I do not endorse him. Uh, and then Landon Donovan is on the cusp as well. He's still deciding if he wants to run. Uh, in my eyes, it's a good thing that Sunil Galati has stepped down, uh, not running again. Uh, it's, it's, he's been in the reins for a long time. I don't remember exactly when he started. And let's be honest, it really hasn't progressed. I mean, I know we had that one year, 2008, when we made it to the quarterfinals. Yeah, we got to the quarterfinals. Why was that such a victory for us? I don't understand. It's just the quarterfinals. If Germany gets knocked out of the quarterfinals, they're crying. Uh, and meanwhile, we're going home happy. And look, I get it. We're not as good as Germany. I understand that. But to me, I don't want to be the country that's just, oh, we made it to the quarterfinals. Yes, we're good. No, I want to be the country that's challenging to win the World Cup, and if we're not, then we're not doing good enough. And maybe maybe I'm being too optimistic well, for U.S. soccer. The, why do you think I keep asking what's the goal of U.S. That's, soccer? Yeah, that's where I was going where, next, where right? Go, like yeah. if, if we as a country want to win a World Cup, we going one time, just once, that's the furthest we've ever gone, and we've only done it once to the quarterfinals is not good enough. Being knocked out in the group stage is not good enough. Being knocked out in the round of 16 is not good enough. That's if we want to win the World Cup. Now, if we're okay with being a... So is it okay to make it to the... Or, excuse me, not to make it out of the group? No. <laughs> what about not making it? Oh, that one's perfect. Yeah, that one, <laughs> well, we are in the group well, of death. Yeah, now. I was going to say, let's be honest. We're, we're in the group of death here. We got Italy, Holland, and Chile with us. I mean, that, yeah. that's, that's pretty good, right? Yeah, pretty, well, I mean, Chile won the Copa America two times in a row. And yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, I mean, we're, we got a scary group going into this World Cup. I'm pretty nervous. I don't know about you. I don't know who's getting out of that. No, I'm kidding. 
so yeah, it's something we need to step back and look at because, in my opinion, all those guys I named, I don't know if they're going to know what to change. Well, I got more actually here, so I'm going to give it to you. Or announce it to oh, yeah, else. sorry, I forgot one. Mike Wilson. <laughs> yeah, new. Just in now, Mike Wilson. So I guess it's now nine. There's, it's a total of eight candidates. Except Mike Wilson just got a, a sworn in, I guess, or he's going to be running. We got Paul Caligari, Kathy Carter, Carlos Cordero, Steve Gantz, Kyle Martino, Holt Solo, Michael Winograd. I about to say Mike Wilson. <laughs> Eric Winalda and Mike Wilson. So yeah, we got all we got all nine now. Uh, so it should be pretty interesting. And I just like Mitchell, I am very concerned one about the state of U.S. soccer. And actually, this is kind of ironic. There's a ad. I'm on U.S. Soccer Federation's page, and it's called the U.S. Soccer Development Fund. And it's an ad. It says support the future, donate to help develop world class players, coaches, and national teams. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not. I'm not convinced that you guys will take care of that. You so. want to hear a funny story about a coaching course? So I was. Uh, I got my e license a little over a year ago, about a year and a half ago. And the head guy, I don't know if I should name him. I guess I won't. Uh, said, "Isn't it great when that one European kid comes along to your team and he's the best player ever?" And everyone else in the room said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. I love that." And I'm just like, "No, that's a problem." It's a problem that a kid who can't make it at, let's just say, let's make, let's make this kid an English kid who can't make it at Manchester United, can't make it at Leeds United, can't make it at Southampton, can't make it anywhere, is coming over to the U.S. and is becoming the best player on the team. If you if we don't understand that that's a problem, we have an issue, right? If we think it's good, if the guy who's coaching the coaches thinks it's the best thing ever, we have a problem, right? Huh? Oh yeah, sorry. Why would that be a problem? Oh yeah, dude, that it's great having the it's great having English kid that's fantastic. It's great having the reject of England come over to America and become the best kid. That's 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 awesome. Oh wait, no, it's not. The guy got rejected. That's why he's here. He's not here because oh yeah, I made it. I was at Manchester City, and then I yeah, I realized the opportunity I had in coming to uh, Florida Rush. It was a great opportunity. I'm glad I'm here. And no, he's not here because he made it. He's here because he didn't make it. Uh, I mean, let's be honest. And that's the problem. And another funny story is we were supposed to be learning about how to coach seven, eight, nine-year-olds, possibly even ten. And uh, some of the drills the instructors were showing us to do, I'd say you 16 players would struggle with. And so we're supposed to teach these guys, or these kids that are seven, eight, nine-year-olds. Meanwhile, these are the instructors. These aren't the coaches who are being taught. These are the instructors teaching, the coaches teaching the coaches how to coach seven, eight, nine-year-olds. And I'm like, why? Why would a? Why would a? Why, why would a? I mean, I I couldn't even speak. I'm like, why? Why is a seven-year-old, eight, nine-year-old, nine-year-old doing this passing drill? You want him to play a ball in the air? He's seven. It blew my mind. And then, of course, I could go on about this forever, by the way. They didn't instruct us on how, or they didn't teach us how to coach. They taught us how to fill out paper. As if I didn't go to school for 12 years and didn't know how to fill out a piece of paper. Well, I guess you didn't learn there. Apparently not, because the dude actually complained about the way I filled it out. He said it wasn't good enough. <laughs> and he said if this was a D license, I'd fail. 
<laughs> so I guess I did it. I guess it's a good thing I actually went to that course. Uh, no, but uh, that's the problem, right? Who cares if you can understand my paper? It's my paper. If I can understand it, that's that's the only person who needs to understand it, right? I'm not gonna show it. <laughs> I'm not gonna show it to you. I'm not gonna. Hey, you a soccer? What do you think of my outline? You think it's good? Should I run this? No, that's not what's happening. I'm coaching my team. U.S. Soccer's got no part of it. So why are we teaching coaches how to fill out paper? I don't understand. Anyways. So, yeah, I mean, there's a going to be a, a big change for U.S. Soccer. Hopefully it's going to be a, a positive one, but I guess only time will tell, unless it's Mike Wilson. That's definitely being a positive one. So that'll be positive. But so vote for Mike Wilson. If it if it's not Mike Wilson, who knows what we're gonna get? It might be good, might not. But I think with the uh, we definitely need to change for sure, U.S. Soccer president, and hopefully that will bring positive change and not just negative change. Because I mean, everybody's talking potentially about good things, but will it actually be good? And I guess that's what we're gonna find out. So right. and will. Will the system be open enough for change? And what I mean is, are there things in place that would prevent change from happening? Like, are there Probably. rules, structures, a bylaws, whatever it is in place that could stop necessary changes from happening? And I guess time will tell. I mean, I'm not, I guess, unfortunately, I'm not there as a candidate to know. I don't know if there's a chance I could still put in my paperwork, but I will if I can. And I'll go compete. Why not? It'd be fun. I don't expect to win, but I'd go compete for it. And maybe I'll challenge with Mike Wilson. So that's definitely interesting. All i got to say is thank God Alexi Lawless isn't running. Because if he won, we'd be screwed for a while. Huh. That guy's got no clue about anything of soccer related. Anyways. So, moving on to the next thing. Uh, and this kind of ties into the whole U.S. soccer president stuff. What is the next step for American soccer? Voting so, in a new president. Yeah, so obviously voting in the, the new president, and where does the development, or what, what, is, what should the emphasis be? As most of you guys know from Mitchell and myself, the emphasis should now change. Let's not focus, because the next World Cup's not for technically four and a half years. Let's focus on the actual development of players, so that way by the time we get closer to 2022... And beyond, we'll be better prepared like Germany did after the 2006, I believe, that they changed, they revolutionized their training, changed everything to make it more focused on player development, and look at the success they've now had. So, well, I mean, let's, I mean, let's look at China now. China's doing it. Yeah. So uh, why don't we just jump ship? I mean, look, we're not going to find success straight away. It's going to be a while, and we may not even find success at the next World Cup, but the following ones... Yeah, we'd find some success, I'd say. I mean, that's when you may not find it at the, this upcoming World Cup. You're not going to find it at this upcoming World Cup because, well, we're not going to be there. But the next one, probably not going to find it either if we start investing now. But the ones after that, yeah, I'd say we'd probably, I'd probably say six to ten years. Yeah, I'd say we'd start seeing some serious changes. So I think that's what we need to do, really start reevaluating. We need it. Well, we should have already reevaluated our infrastructure, and now it's time to start changing it. If we want to be serious. Uh, yeah. So last thing we want to do, guys, if there's no more questions or comments or thoughts or anything concerns. like that. Concerns. Concerns. Uh, we want to talk about or do the World Cup predictions. So 
we want to go, I want to give my final four with the final two, and then the champions. So I think the final four will be, I'm going to put my names down here, France, Belgium, and I'll tell you why in a second I'm picking these four. France, Belgium, man, let's go Germany, and the final one, that is a good question. China number one. France, Belgium, Germany, and... USA! USA. And, man, 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 this is where it gets tough, because there's like two that I'm really thinking about. I'll go with... Italy? <laughs> Italy would be a good choice, wouldn't it? Woo! I'm really struggling to pick between these. Uh, man, I'm going to shoot for Spain. And I think this one's a little bit more of a long shot, to be honest. I believe the final will come down to... France. For sure. France and... What do you guys think, France? And I really... Germany is tricky. I would, yeah, I mean, I, 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 really, I, I think I'm way. really pushing Spain to get there because I don't know how many of you guys watched the El Clasico today, but I'm watching... I mean, none of them really Spanish, but... I'm watching, well, I guess Carvajal was, but I'm watching that game, and the first goal, I don't know how many of you saw it, and I was like, Ramos. it was an absolute disaster of a goal. I, I mean, that made me feel like soccer, professional soccer is, what's the word I'm looking for, is fake set up, because that was incredible defending, and I don't mean that in the right way. I mean, people just walk past players, so I think it'd be really interesting to see Belgium in the final. I think, I think be, they can do it, but I think their manager is going to, Hurt them. Martinez, yeah. Okay, With the that. winner, I'm going for France. Reason why, uh, I didn't even explain this yet. Reason why is if you look at their, their roster, it is disgusting. Dirty. It is disgusting. Dirty. And, and that's in a good sense, by the way, how good their their players look and are. I mean, most of them, I think, are under the age of 24. It's like 80% of them. you got a couple like Matuidi, Loris, and I think Griezmann's 26. But... You know, you're talking some absolutely serious quality football players, and it's exciting. I mean, think about watching. We might get a chance to watch Mbappe at a World Cup. We'll get a chance, hopefully, to watch Martial at a World Cup. Get a chance Ooh, to watch Kingsley Coman. Kingsley Coman. Paul Pogba. Yeah, Paul Pogba. I mean, you're talking uh, all these guys. Conte. And Golo Conte would be a good one. So, I mean, you're talking again. A lot of good players. And Sidhu. Uh, Griezmann as well. Ooh. I mean, that, that's, that's, a, that's a stacked squad. So That's a stellar team. I, I would actually like to see France win just because of the quality they have. And I think Belgium as well would be a very good team. Or they are a very good team. And I think does. they have, it's tough to say this season, but out of that hell has been injured. But I think he's, last season he was the best center back in the world, in my opinion. Not, nobody even came close. In my opinion. I think, I think Belgium's got the best team, but I think their manager is going to hurt them. I think if you line out their starting 11 versus starting 11, I think Belgium edges France just slightly, but I think their manager is worse, and I think that's why France is going to win. Now, I'm going to go a little more in-depth with my prediction. I'm going to go with each group winner and runners-up. You ready? So, Group A has got Brazil, Croatia, Mexico, Cameroon. Brazil's winning that, no doubt in my mind. Croatia's going to finish second, I think. I think so. Who's the fourth? I don't have it here. Actually, Brazil, Croatia, Mexico, Cameroon. Yep. It's either going to be Mexico, Croatia, I'm going Croatia. And Group B. That's not right. Spain, Netherlands, Chile, Australia. Must have been from before. That can't be right. All right, let's. Uh, 
Let's redo this. 2018. Right, you got it up. Can I just see yours? Sure. Uh, I'll just go France, Peru, Denmark, Australia. France, Peru, Denmark, Australia. Well, France and Dan the Danes. I'd have to go with the Danes. Okay. Argentina, Croatia, Iceland, and Argentina. Nigeria. Argentina, Croatia. Okay. Brazil, Switzerland, Costa Rica, Serbia. Brazil, Switzerland, Costa Rica, Serbia. Brazil, Costa Rica, Switzerland. I'm going to go with Switzerland. Germany, Mexico, Sweden, South Korea. Germany, Mexico, Sweden, South Korea. Germany, Mexico. No Sweden, huh? No Sweden. And no South Korea, all right. Definitely Belgium, not. England, Tunisia, Panama. Belgium winning, England second. Okay. Poland, Colombia, Senegal, Japan. Poland, Colombia, Senegal. How is that a group? Poland, Colombia, Senegal, Japan. Colombia wins it. Poland second. I mean, honestly, that might be the group of death because that's a... Either one can get out. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, anybody can get out of any group, but like, that's, you know, there's no like historical favorites. Yeah. I mean, Poland. There's no like big country there. Yeah, Pol I mean, you could argue Colombia. I mean, I only edged it because of James Rodriguez yeah. and Radamel Falcao. And but like, yeah, I mean, Poland. They were I mean, good they a long time ago. They're not that they're not good now, but they're not like a historically top nation. Same with Colombia. Same with Senegal. And Japan, so it's like, I mean, honestly, I feel like that's the that's the actual group of death. I mean, my first reaction is, how is that a group? Where's the yeah. where's the how super how is power. Belgium and England in a group? But that's yeah, there's no See, superpower in that one. It's crazy, but the reason why I didn't pick any South American teams is because there was a I don't know if studies were, but there was like an article that came out or thought process, I guess, that no team, if I remember correctly. No team from South America has ever won a Euro, Euro, a World Cup in Europe. And it was the same way the other way, where no European team had won a World Cup in South America until 2014 when Germany actually won. So that kind of shows how difficult it can be for countries in those regions to try and go across to, to play. So it's definitely, definitely an interesting thing, and I think we're going to be in for a very exciting... Uh, exciting story, so I guess we're going to find out. And, yeah, I mean, that, that's pretty much it, guys. If nobody has any comments, questions, thoughts, concerns... I wasn't done. Oh, Mitchell's got something, so let's see. Well, we haven't gotten through all the way. What do you mean? The World Cup predictions. That was all of them. That's all the groups. Yeah, but what about my finals, my semifinals? Okay, we'll do it. I'm waiting. I don't, I don't remember who, I don't remember who all I no, said. Well, that, I mean, you said France and Denmark, Argentina, Croatia, Brazil... All right, well, I'm going to go to the top four now. So those are all getting out. Uh, top four is France. Belgium. Do I want to put Belgium in that? I don't know. I don't know if I can. I'm going to go France, Germany, Belgium, England. That's what I'm going with. England? I'm giving it to England. Why? You talk about coaches, you think? I don't think Eric Southgate's a good coach. Or the best manager. I think he's obviously a good manager. Otherwise, he wouldn't be managing professional soccer at one of the highest levels. But I think the players are going to pull it through for them, which is the same way for Belgium. I think I think England's finally got a group of players that can play the game of soccer and play it together. I think England's problem has always been their manager. They've always had so players. So starting 11 for England, who would it be? Starting 11. Fortunately, Joe Hart. I'd Fortunately say. or unfortunately? Unfortunately. Oh. It's either him or Fraser Forster I'd have to give it to. Possibly even Tom Heaton. Tom Heaton's been pretty good. 
Center backs, Gary Cahill, Phil well, Jones. Well, first, what are you going to play? What formation? Well, you said they got the team to do it. I think so. they got the team to do it. Formation, probably a 4-3. Now put Mitchell on the spot. 4-3-3. Let's go. Okay, so you got Joe Hart or Fraser Forster or Tom Heaton. I mean, honestly, you take your pick with those three. Anyone can do the job, I think. And then center backs, Phil Jones and Gary Cahill start. Right back, Kyle Walker, hands down. Left back, Danny Rose. I think those two are just... The best fullbacks in the league, mm-hmm. in my opinion, bar, bar none. Yeah, Fabian Delphi's doing a good job. Benjamin Mendy's going to start over in the second he's back. Well, he ain't back for a long time. Yeah, but the second he's back, he's starting over. Hey, but that doesn't uh, mean he can't play left back. Anyways, go ahead. Uh, no, you lost my train of thought. Oh, I'm at Defense number six. Field. Let's go. Number six. I guess Eric Dyer. He looked all right. <laughs> uh, Eric Dyer I'd probably put in there. Jack Wilshere next to him if he gets a run of games and stays healthy. I think Jack Wilshere is a baller. I, I think he's all out. A uh, fantastic player next to him. Do I go Jordan Hander- Henderson? It's a Henderson. Henderson. <laughs> next to him. That's a tough one. Next to Jack Wilshere. Who do I put next to Jack Wilshere? I think I need a, a more creative player next to him. I think I'm going to go with... I want to put Deli Alley, but I don't want to put Deli Alley there. I, I'm going to go Deli Alley there. I'm going to put Deli Alley next to Jack Wilshere. And I'm going to let Deli Alley play further forward. I'm going to let Jack Wilshere be the 8 and Eric Dyer obviously be the 6. I think out wide right, I go Raheem Sterling. Wide left, Rashford. Up top, Harry Kane. I think that's the way I start this, this summer. And I think, I think you obviously have Jordan Henderson on the bench. If not, he's in there. If Jack Wilshere gets hurt, I think Jordan Henderson gets in there. Uh, and, and I think they have depth. Uh, I mean, Chris Smalling, he's doing better this season. He did great yesterday. I don't know if you're kidding or Except not. sarcasm. Okay, he's doing better this season, in my opinion. Uh, albeit, they're going through a tough time. The whole team is. And that's just Chris Smalling, let's be honest. Except for David Haya. Uh, I just think they have numbers. I mean, you got Jamie Vardy, let's be honest, is going to score a goal for you. Uh, I mean, Daniel Sturridge, although he's going through a rough patch as well for a few years now, ever since Luis Suarez left. All right, let's do this. Let's finish your thing. Who's winning the whole thing? Uh, who's winning the whole thing? France. So who plays France in the final? Germany. So England gets knocked out. Right? England and Belgium get knocked out. Yeah, I think France is. I mean, France's team is phenomenal. I, I don't think you're. I don't think any country is touching them this summer. I, don't, I can't see one that matches with them. Well, I guess we're gonna find out. Only time will tell. All right, guys. So that pretty much wraps up our show. If there's no more questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, experiences, anything else, I don't know. But that'll wrap it up, guys. So. Thank you for tuning in. Merry Christmas to everybody. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas Eve. And we will see you guys again very soon. So thanks for tuning in. And we will be putting this one out on podcast here very shortly. So enjoy. Thanks for for tuning in.